Let me begin our learning time with a word of prayer. Learn some things about the nature of God. Lord, we do lift up our, our time to you, uh, that our hearts would be open to who you are, what you're like, that we might be able to grasp what we do and why we do it in light of, in light of your beauty. There's nothing in all creation that's hidden from your sight. Everything is uncovered. Everything is laid bare to your eyes. It's you that will give an account. Oh, the depths of the riches of your wisdom and knowledge. Unsearchable are your judgments. Your paths are beyond tracing out. Who can know the mind of Yahweh? Who could be your counselor? Who has ever given to Yahweh that God would have to repay them? It is in him and through him and for him that are all things. For Yahweh be the glory forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Once upon a time, there was this little birdie, and he was flying south for the winter. And he left too late, and the cold wind caught him, and he began to freeze, and it looked like he wasn't going to make it south. He wasn't going to be in the warm climate, and he struggled for quite some time, and eventually he ended up crash landing <laughs> in a field with a herd of cattle. And as they lay there on the grass, he began to freeze to death. And, and just moments before he passed away, some cow dropped a load of manure right on top of him. <laughs> and that freezing little bird thought, there is no peace even in death. But the manure warmed him up, and it thawed him out. And so he came back to life, and he started singing with all this great joy. I'm alive. I'm alive. And this little bird is singing. And there's also a cat outside of that field, and he hears the bird singing. And so he comes over and digs through the pile of manure and pulls him out and then promptly eats him. And there's a lot to be learned in this story. I think the first thing we can learn is that not everybody who drops manure all over you is your enemy. And, and, and not everybody that pulls you out of manure is your friend. And, and if you're ever in a pile of manure, you should shut your mouth. <clears throat> You'll stay out of trouble. And the last thing I think we can learn is we don't know what we think we know. We don't know very much at all. And today, we're going to look at the attribute of God. God is wise, the wisdom of God. And it's going to show itself in great contrast to our limited understanding and our limited wisdom. When you study the attribute of God, of God's wisdom, it usually starts with a big word, omniscience. And the word is omni and science, all-knowing, that God is all-knowing. And what that means is, is that God knows all things that exist. God knows all things that don't exist. He knows all the things that could happen but won't ever happen. He knows every possible decision from every possible person and every possible reality. And so I know there's a near infinite expressions of all the different realities that will never happen. 
And it's so complicated and sophisticated because every single choice has multiple consequences and that produce different consequences that lead to different options for different choices. It's, it's called in science the butterfly effect. That's the nickname for it. And you can see it occasionally in some movies. Oh, let's, let's see. How about It's a Wonderful Life? <clears throat> I'm going to work that into every sermon, I think, in this series. But in the alternate reality where George Bailey doesn't exist, did you notice that when he's on the bridge, the day he was going to jump off the bridge, there was a blizzard when he did exist. But in the, in the reality where he doesn't exist, there's no blizzard. And the, and the writers were trying to show that if George Bailey never existed, decades later, it affects the weather. That's how complicated it is when you look at every possibility of every decision that could ever be made by any people, whether they existed or not. The possibilities are too confounding for us to even speculate, but not Yahweh. That's what all-knowing means. He is omniscient, and he knows all things that will exist and that won't exist. Now, wisdom is when you take the all-knowingness of, of Yahweh and you apply it to a moral outcome. And what that means is that God saw the ultimate perfect end and then saw every possibility of getting to that end, and, it, and he chose the best possible means, the perfect means to that perfect end. That's how God's wisdom is expressed. That's how he uses his all-knowingness. Listen to, here's some three quotes or definitions of, of the wisdom of God from three different scholars. Look at all of the overlap in their definitions. We'll start with um, A.W. Tuzer. All, all God's acts are done with perfect wisdom, first for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. In, only, in, in other words, um, not only are all of God's, th th there's no action that God could have done better, but there is no action that could have been even imagined to be better. You can't imagine a better means or a better end. Here's uh, Burkhoff's. Wisdom is the attribute of God whereby he produces the best possible results by the best possible means. Dr. Charles Rowry from Dallas Seminary, the wisdom of God tells us that God will bring about the best possible results by the best possible means for the most possible people for the longest possible time. This, this life, this reality, this existence, it is the best possible world, they say in philosophy. This is the best possible world. This is the best reality because if there were a better reality imaginable by God, all-knowing God, it would be obliging to him, driven by the wisdom of God, to have chosen that reality. This has to be the best one. It's required for God's wisdom to be true. And, and so God Almighty must be exacting and precise, God Almighty must be flawlessly perfect in the execution of his perfect end. He can't be otherwise. 
So there's no, there's no idea of God like muddling his way through. There's no uh, winging it. There's, there's no like, oh, look, an opportunity presents itself. Let's, let's seize that moment. Right? There's, there's no taking advantage of that. There's no playing it by ear. You know the story in the Gospels where Jesus is heading south from Galilee and he's working his way to Jerusalem and he, and he kind of looks around and he goes, wait, what? Oh, we're lost again. No, he never does that. There's no story about Jesus apologizing. If you know anything about teaching, this is how you wake up the day after. Oh, I didn't do that right. There's no story about Jesus waking up and saying, okay, look, guys, I kind of misspoke yesterday. When I said this, I really meant that, and I really meant well, but I didn't say it right. No story. There's nothing like that because Jesus is the personification of the wisdom of God in flesh. And so what he did, he did right the first time. It was perfect. Here's how the wisdom of God applies in our own life. Think of, think of your decisions that you make in life about whether to surrender to the Lord or not, whether to choose morally or not. Ultimately, when we're making choices of ethics or morality or obedience, it's we can say it's, it's faith in God, but I would say more particularly, it is faith in God's wisdom. It's faith in God's wisdom. The surrendered life is the life that says, Lord, you know more than me. You are profoundly more understanding than I am. When, <clears throat> when God says you should abstain from these things and you should proactively do these things and you don't, you are saying, Sure, <laughs> that applies to other people, but in my case, it's different, or I know better. I have a greater understanding, a wisdom about this. So um, a young lady falls in love with a man, and she should not marry him. There are clear Bible passages that say, don't, no, don't do this. So she doesn't like those passages, and so she consults friends that know the Bible, and they say, do not marry this man but she wants to. She does anyway, because in her imagination, she has seen the future, and she knows that now, right, as, as her husband, he will, want, he, will, he will want to start going to church. In the future, as her husband, oh, he's going to want to be the spiritual leader of this house. As, as her husband, she's going to, she can see it, that he's going to want to love the Lord more than his very own life. And since she knows more, she chooses to marry him. God, in his wisdom, sees every possible reality of these two people getting married and one being a spiritual person and one being not. And he says, no, that's highly improbable this is going to work out. So this is why I set up these boundaries, because of my, because of my wisdom. But the love, the, I don't know, the, the, the fog of love, uh, the fear of loneliness, that can cause us to doubt the wisdom of God. And so later, the probable answer, what happens is she's 35 and divorced with three children. And sometimes she'll say, why God? And the why God, the answer is, because you chose to doubt God's wisdom. The act of disobedience was a contempt 
for the intelligence of God. So now I don't want to leave this poor gal here. Uh, let's not let's wait. Let's keep, let's stay on subject right here. Because all of us, we all, <laughs> we're all living on the other side of bad decisions made because we ignored the wisdom of God. I think everyone here would probably say, oh, Lord, if I just knew your will, I would seriously consider it. <clears throat> right? So let's stay on subject here. What now? What now for our little example and what now for the rest of us? Here's how you're consoled. The wisdom of God knows every possible consequence and every possible future and, will, and, and is able to make the best possible life out of what is left. Out of what is left. The, the wisdom of God is that he works this out in perfection, first according to his glory, and then according to the highest good for the most people for the longest time with what's left. And so when you start with that day of repentance and restoration, he's like, watch me work. Watch wisdom played out now. Let's see what we can do with what's left. I want you to see that, that, that your spiritual life, it's, this is where it is for most of us. It's the it's, it's choices about the wisdom of God. The spirit-filled life versus the self-filled life is God is wise or I am wise. I'm the one who knows the most. Trusting God is trusting Yahweh in his wisdom. That all the acts of God are done in absolute perfection for his glory first and then for the most good for the most people, for the most time, for the longest time. That's what it means. I want you, I want, I want you to see now we get this uh, opportunity to see into a circumstance and a situation of what wisdom of God looks like when it's played out. It's, a, it's, it's fortunate for us because we get to see behind the scenes of what God was thinking when he chose to lead a nation to a place. So here's a passage I want you to look at that the first time I read this, I just, I, I stopped right in the middle of this. It's not even a passage, it's a single sentence. And, and I, when I read it the first time, I just stopped everything. I moved my Bible away and went, wow. That sentence is going to change everything about the way I believe about God. This is the wisdom of God. Let's start at the end of the story. Question is, is how does Israel end up on the near banks of the Red Sea? How does Israel end up on the bad side of the Red Sea? You could ask yourself, how do you find yourself in a place that seems most miserable when you're actually following God to the best of your capabilities? Did they get lost? Did they do something wrong that they didn't know about? No, no, no. There's an army approaching. They have water in front of them, and they, they, were, they were led there by God himself in his wisdom. So here's the theme of the message, the passage itself. In God's wisdom, he will intentionally, premeditatively, know, knowingly, purposefully lead you to places that seem most miserable in his wisdom. Here's where they miss their turn. Exodus chapter 13, let me give you a little bit of context. Israel has been in Egypt for 400 years. Most of the time they were shepherds and then they became slaves. After the 10 plagues, you're probably familiar with Egypt is devastated, and finally, 
Pharaoh capitulates and throws Israel out. And in the context of this, they are leaving Egypt and they are off to the promised land. Be clear on this. The end is that they end is they are in the promised land. It's called the promised land. It's a promise from God that you'll get this land. So it's their destiny. That's where they're going to end up. And it's a pretty easy shot from, from Egypt to uh, Canaan. It, <laughs> there is literally a highway that goes straight east from Egypt to Canaan. Okay? It's an international highway. It's called the Way of the Sea because it just hugs the Mediterranean all the way across. Just stay on the highway, you get there. It's an eight, it's an eight to ten-day journey. Boing, we're there. Leave Egypt, get to the promised land, call it a day, take a nap. Instead, God leads them south, and he leads them south to the Red Sea. It's a trap. The Egyptian army is approaching them, and here's why. Now, that's, this is the wisdom of God. Now he's going to tell us why. It doesn't happen in very many passages, so let's jump on this one. Verse 17 is the one that changed my life. And when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the land of the Philistines, although it was very near and the highway was right there. For God said, lest the people change their minds, then they, they see war and they return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way to the wilderness towards the Red Sea, and the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Verse 19, Moses took the bones of Joseph with him. For Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear to him, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you when you guys leave from here. So verse 17 is the answer to the question, how do you end up on the bad side of the Red Sea? Verse 17 says, oh, sure, we could go the highway, but it's, you're going to encounter the Philistines there, and you will probably grow faint and turn back and want to get back to Egypt, run to the open arms of an embittered pharaoh. That's going to be a great story. But the point is, I want you to see that the reason he sends them south is this parental, this fatherly love with wisdom. It, it basically is saying, look, if you go the highway, the, the way of the sea, it's going to go through a very dangerous neighborhood. Wait. There's another name for that road. You can look in the back of your Bibles. You'll see it. It's either going to say the way of the sea or it's going to see, say the way of the Philistines. And the Philistines were the most warlike people at the time. They were like Vikings. They were men of the sea that had come and began taking over lands everywhere they could, they could harbor a boat. And that was the way the Philistines. And God saw in his perfect wisdom, right, to help the most people in the greatest way for the longest period of time, he says this, you guys aren't ready for that. You can't make it there. You have no military skills. You have no national cohesion. What are you going to do when you run into these warmongers? What, throw bricks at them? You don't know how to fight. And he, so he says, here's what, in, in the context of what we're learning, in every possible reality, in every possible scenario, I see Israel going the short way and never making it to the promised land. They are either utterly destroyed or they grow faint and they, go, and they want to return to Egypt. It will never work. And so, in God's wisdom, he says, oh, we're going to go south to the Red Sea. It is a trap, but not for you. 
It says quite clearly in the next few sentences, it says, I still have some unfinished business with the Egyptians. And I will devastate them in such a way, in such a grand expression of my power, the parting of the Red Sea, that people will be talking about this for millennial because they need to know, the world. it says, the world will know that I am Yahweh. So that's the first reason his wisdom sent those people there. And the second one is because after the Red Sea, he says, no, 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 we still need to go farther south to Mount Sinai. I need to talk to you as a country. I'm going to descend upon that mountain and I will speak to you like I have no other people group. And I will call you my own and I will give you the wisdom from above on how to be a country and how laws should apply. And, and, the, and the wisdom I'll bestow on you will be used forever. And then we'll maybe we'll learn some, some combat skills and we can start with little wars and then we can work our way up to big wars. The point is, he leads them to the Red Sea because this time, in this situation, God is able to tell us, and it makes sense. The reason he tells us this time what motivated him was so that we would know in future times to believe in this definition. Let's, you know what? Let's just read this together, shall we? That all God's acts are done in perfect wisdom first for his own glory, and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. If you find yourself on the bad side of the Red Sea, and you feel like you've been following the Lord in the most capable ways you can, your conscience is clear, you're trusting God in great new ways, and there you are, and you say, I cannot imagine a worse place to be than right here. The reason you can't imagine that is because you don't have the wisdom of God. There are probably hundreds of thousands of worse places for you to be, but you don't know what those are. You don't have the ultimate wisdom of Yahweh. Yahweh, in his calculation of every possible reality, has determined that this is the best place for you to be, the most fortunate place for you to be, for his glory and for your perfection. Maybe, maybe being under a pile of manure is just the thing you need to thaw your soul. So when you're there, I think the purpose of this passage is to suggest that we should be quiet and to trust in the Lord. And not just trust in the Lord vaguely, but trust in the Lord's wisdom. His all-knowing as applied to a moral decision to perfect to pick a perfect reality. Let me tell you how you should live. Here's how we're supposed to live in the context of uh, the attribute of God that God is wise. Let me give you two principles that will help you live like in the present moment, you know, current decision-making when it's very difficult to see how you're supposed to believe in the wisdom of God. Two principles, okay? How to live with doubt, but trusting in the wisdom of God. The first one is you live in the present obedience based on the promises of God and his past work in your life. You live in the present obedience, choosing to be obedient. You live in the present obedience based on his promises and his past working in your life. It, sometimes, okay, sometimes, you know, you know this, sometimes when you look back on your life, 
and you see what God, you know, what God did in your life and it didn't seem like it was wise at the time, sometimes when you look back, you say, okay, that was the right thing, God. I mean, there's a very popular figure of speech that goes like this, right? I thank God for unanswered prayers. I mean, it was such a popular saying, they made it into a song and that song was popular. It wasn't a good song, it wasn't. But it was a popular song because so many people could sing along with it. I thank God for unanswered prayers because during this prayer time, we're begging and pleading and nagging and and twisting the arm of God saying, this is what I want, this is really what I want. And he says, no, in all possible realities, in all possible decisions, in every possible matrix of the future, it always turns out poorly for you. So no. And then you get 10 or 20 years back and you are ahead and you look back and you go, oh, yeah, that's good. That's good. And so the point is you look, you look at how God has worked in your past. You look at the promises of God and, and you say, okay, now I can live in this moment. In this story that we're looking at right here, that's why we went to verse 19, they're carrying the bones of Joseph with them. And here's, here's kind of the story behind that story. Okay, 400 years before they left Egypt, right? The per, first person to get to Egypt was Joseph. He was sold uh, by his brothers into slavery. They ended up, he ended up in, in Egypt, and he ended up running the place. And then his family joins him, and then his family multiplies. And then on his deathbed, Joseph, on his deathbed, recites a promise, the promises and the way he works with you. Joseph remembers the promise, and he says, listen, don't you leave my remains in this country. This is not our home. He said, God's coming back. He's going to take you to the promised land, and I want my remains to go with you. So if you can imagine the skirmish that's going on after the 10th plague, right, and everybody's mounting up and leaving town, and Moses says, whoa, 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 somebody find that casket. We've got to get the bones of Joseph. And so they, they go and they get that because it reminds them of the promise that was made and how God had been working in the life of Israel. Some kid says to his mom, hey, mom, how come the point of our exit, right, everybody's leaving and what's leading this parade is this coffin? Why is that? Those are the bones of Joseph. We keep those in front of us because we need to remember the promise of God that he gave us that we would own the promised land. And we need to remember how he's worked in our life. That's how we live in the present ambiguity and fear. We live it based on the promises of the past and the way God has worked in our, in our uh, the promises and how he's worked in our past. Because friends, if, if you forget your past, you will doom your future. If you forget your past, you will doom your future. And not just, not just unanswered prayers, okay? How about the answered prayers? God's miraculous intervention in your life. God's provisions for your life. Every, we say this phrase, right? God thing. Oh, it was a God thing. That ha- Every time you have a God thing, you, you have to mark that in your life story. Okay? Uh, start a journal, uh, the chronicles of God's work, mirac- the chronicles of God's miraculous work in my life or in our family. Because it, it's... It's imperative that you make folklore, family folklore, out of the God's intervening stories in your life because you have to remember these promises and you have to remember God's working in your life so that in the present moment when you're confused, you'll make decisions that are consistent. Mark your calendar. Put that little thing on those calendars where every year it reminds you, oh, this was the day. Every Christian's life is supposed to be it's supposed to have multiple stories of miracles. 
If you don't believe in miracles, you're not doing it right. You need to be trusting God, sometimes for big, huge things, sometimes for things that are right in front of us, like provisions and protection. You should put God into the employment equation so that when you are employed, you can say, that was a God thing. Mark it on the calendar. Put it in the chronicle. Make sure it repeats every year. It was a miracle. The way where you live or how you find the finances to be able to do something, God's provision, God's protection, they're supposed to be part of our lives, our everyday lives, part of keeping us even keeled in the storms of life. If you forget your past, you are dooming your future. You'll doubt the wisdom of God in the moment. So that's the first principle on how to live trusting in the wisdom of God. And the second, the second one is this, okay? You just obey. Just do the right thing. Don't think this thing out. You're not qualified to get ahead of this in the context of wisdom. We don't know what we're doing. Okay, the, The deepest books in the Older Testament in the context of wisdom are Job and Ecclesiastes. They are literally in a genre called the wisdom literature. And it's unfathomable how deep these two books go. And both of them have a similar lesson. And the lesson is this. We don't understand very much. We're just kind of like parrots trying to play chess. We're monkeys working a space shuttle. We're in over our heads. Sometimes, sometimes... God will tell us what he's up to in his expression of his will. Most of the time, honestly, he doesn't. Job, the theme of Job. Many times, there's no making sense out of suffering. You won't. And the harder you try, the more frustrated you'll become. Because sometimes, sometimes, the only thing you can gain out of suffering is the belief that all God's acts are done in perfect wisdom for his own glory first, for then for the highest good, the greatest number for the longest time. We just have to be very careful. We're just, we're just little things that don't know a lot. And I just want to say this particular audience we have to be especially care, careful here because we think figuring it out is the solution to a lot of our problems. This is an intelligent congregation. Many of you have advanced degrees. Many of you are very successful in the disciplines that you practice, and you know why you're successful? Because you're able to figure stuff out. And, and that's, that's good, but it's almost a warning to... But it's a whole different level when it comes to God's all-knowing and wisdom. And so most of our life has been problems and then solutions and then success. I'm just saying a lot of life is mystery. A lot of suffering is mystery. You're not going to know. We just can't know. The other book Solomon wrote, Ecclesiastes, that book says the same thing. You can't know. His is in the context of prosperity. And there's an angst that happens in the inner part of a soul when a person is able to experience all the joys of life, sometimes even the ones that are out of bounds, and you say, is this all? Is this all? And there's a darkness that descends. 
and he wonders why. And listen, this, this quest to absolutely know will drive some men insane and it will bring peace to others because God has made us in his image. He has made us wise, but we're not that wise. And if we pursue too much, it, here's, here's how, this is the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Look how there's a frustration built into us. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he put eternity into a man's heart, yet, yet that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We want to know God's wisdom, and we can't. Chesterton, I love how Chesterton put it. He said, the scientist, right, the, the logician, he says, tries to get all of heaven into its head and goes crazy. He says the poet, the, the mystic, the sage, the wise man, he just tries to get his head into heaven and just wonder, just enjoy it. So Job and Solomon both say live for the moment. Experience it for what it is. Experience the fullness of its suffering and the fullness of prosperity. Be content in those things. I am not in the least bit here arguing ignorance is bliss. Not at all. Here's what I'm suggesting. That there is a joy and a peace that comes to a person after the big wrestling match of I have to know. After you've resolved that you don't have to understand everything, then you can rest like a child that finally just finally trusts their parent because they just will. And they're just going to obey. If you obey because you understand, then you'll disobey because you don't. Your obedience cannot be contingent on understanding. Sometimes you just obey. Here's the punchline of Ecclesiastes, the book of wisdom that Solomon wrote. At the end of the matter, <laughs> all's been said and heard. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's the whole duty of man. <laughs> He's keeping it simple, isn't he? <laughs> I don't understand. Okay, I'm just going to obey. So how do you live in the present moment in the context of confusion at the bad side of the Red Sea? You're following the Lord as much as you possibly know. How do you do that? You live your life decisions based on the promises of God and how he's worked in your life. You remember your history so you won't doom your future. And the second thing is when you're in the fog of war, when you're concussed, by life going all around you, you go back to your training soldier and just do what you're told. Maybe someday it'll make sense. But this is true. All God's acts are done in perfect wisdom, first for his glory and then for the highest good of the greatest number for the longest time. Elizabeth Elliot is an old saint. She recently died, and she used to visit a friend of hers, John, and his wife up in northern uh, Wales, and uh, he was a, they were sheep uh, uh, farmers, ranchers, and she'd been there several times throughout the years, and one time she went during that one season, and she'd never seen kind of the cruel side of ranching. She was there the weekend where John had to take all of the sheep and... and dipped them in this vat of antiseptic because 
if he didn't, they would, they would die from parasites and insects and those sorts of things. And so he's lining up all these sheep one by one and putting them in this tank and holding them underwater. Picture yourself, okay, trying to bathe a whole herd of cats, okay, right, one by one. Uh, and they weigh 170 pounds. I mean, it was a long day for John, I think is the point here, okay? And so he, he, would, he would hold them underwater, like their whole face, right? Their head, right? their eyes, their nose, their mouth, and, they, and, and he'd have to leave them there for quite some time. If they would get away, the, the sheepdog would head them off, scare them back into the tank, and John would hold them under. And then while all of this is happening, uh, Elizabeth Elliot said, oh, I'm the sheep. I'm that sheep. And there's... And that sheep is looking up at John with his little eyes open underwater, thinking John's trying to drown him and thinking, you're my master, and I thought you liked me. What have I done wrong? And now, the, the bigger context of this is Elizabeth Elliot was 45 when she wrote this story, and already she'd been widowed twice. Her first husband, as a young married, was martyred. He was murdered in an attempt to bring the gospel to a tribe. She'd been She'd been through some hard things. She followed God right to the wrong side of the Red Sea. And she saw that and she said, I know two things to be true. I know that that rancher has to, <laughs> has to nearly drown each one of these sheep one by one. And, he, and she said, I know that to be true. It's the only way the sheep will live another year. And she said, I know this to be true that there is no reasoning with those sheep in trying to explain why. Poor little John couldn't grab those sheep one by one going, okay, so here's the thing. <laughs> the sheep will never know. And she said this, because the gap in intelligence between a sheep and a man was too vast for the sheep to ever know. And then she thought, oh, no, between an, a finite being and a finite being, What's the gap between man and Yahweh God Almighty? That's an infinite distance. There's things we will never understand. Do you really want to live in a world where you understand everything, even in the next world? Do you really want the God of all things to be grasped by you, right? Our minds, we don't want that. We don't have to worry. To trust in God is to trust in God's wisdom. It's to trust that he has a perfect plan, he has a perfect end, and he has chosen the perfect means to get to that end for his glory first and then for the best possible results for the most people for the longest period of time. We need to meditate on that and rest in that. Would you close your eyes with me? I would like to uh, just read you some things, a couple good quotes from books in the Bible, would you think about this? It's the wise God who always thinks of your highest good for the longest time. He always does what he does with flawless precision, seeking the end that is greatest for our enjoyment and most saintly behavior. He never makes mistakes. He's never asking us to do anything we can't do. He's never asking us to do something that we can't endure. No unfair demands. 
In every command, he gives us the power to obey and the opportunity to show that we live for him. And then the Lord spoke to Job out of a storm, and he said, Who is it that challenges my wisdom? Brace yourself. I'd like to ask you some questions. You should answer me this. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? If you understand, you can just tell me. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know that. Who stretched the measuring line across it? Where were the footings set? Where were the cornerstones laid? While the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted with joy, were you there? Who shut up the sea behind the doors when they burst forth from the womb? When the clouds in its garments wrapped in thick darkness, who held those back? Who fixed the limits of the oceans with bars and doors? Because they wanted to go farther. And I said, this far, no further. This is where you shall halt. You are proud waves, but you will have no greater distance. All that comes our way is from the hand of a good, loving, and wise God that knows all things actual and possible. He exerted his unlimited power to execute the best possible outcome for the best possible means to fulfill the highest possible purposes so that you and I might have what he promised, the abundant life. Lord Jesus, let us help our, I'm sorry, the Spirit of God. Would you help us meditate on these truths so that we might change the way we view all of life and the glory of your wisdom? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.